to episode number 8 of Brazilian Talk. I'm your host, Rodrigo Brandão. On March 23rd, President Barack Obama signed his comprehensive health care reform bill into legislation, marking a major milestone in the history of the United States. But in Massachusetts, the issue of comprehensive health care reform dates back to four years ago, when the state became the first to implement a statewide regulation for accessibility to health care. Many similarities exist between the 2006 bill and the current federal legislation, and the experiences faced by Latinos during health care reform in Massachusetts were the focus of a study named No One Asked Me, Latinos' Experiences with Massachusetts Health Care Reform by Dr. Dharma E. Cortez. Dr. Dharma is our guest today, and it's a pleasure to speak with her about her work and the current health care reform in the United States. Um, thank you, Dr. Dharma, for talking to Brazil NYC today. I was looking at your bio, and it seems that you've been doing work with the Latino community for the last 15 years. So I was wondering if, it, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit and talk about the work you've been doing with the Latino community um, before we talk about this report. Sure. So my, my uh, research with the Latino community actually started in New York City uh, in the late 80s, so it's more than 15 years. I sometimes say 15 years so people don't know how old I am. <laughs> so, um, so I started as a grad student uh, doing my Ph.D. in sociology, and uh, I started, uh, my research started focusing on the migration experience of Puerto Ricans to New York City. So I devoted uh, probably about 10 years to look at the, the Puerto Rican experience in New York City. I was interested in issues uh, having to do with acculturation, adjustment to a new cultural setting, and the implications for mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, after 10 years in New York City, I moved to uh, Massachusetts. I completed a um, postdoctoral degree in uh, training in um, medical anthropology focusing also on culture and mental health, and over time I started to gravitate towards um, health, general health issues. So uh, I've, you know, I've conducted uh, research with other Latino populations besides Puerto Ricans and also besides mental health and psychological distress. I've also focused on issues having to do with management of chronic diseases. Uh, I was also interested in access to health care, um, health literacy, and also um, educational interventions uh, related to the management of chronic diseases and also patient-provider communication. So the reason why I ended up uh, looking at health reform, the impact of health reform uh, among Latinos in Massachusetts has to do with my interest in looking at um, access to care among um, historically underserved populations. That's excellent. So you've been working in this area for a long time now. It's not a, a new area. No, no, no. The, the, the specific focus on, on health reform is mm-hmm. new because clearly we started to deal with health reform in recent years, but I've always been interested in uh, looking at pathways of um, immigrants and minority populations to health care. That's excellent. So I guess going back to the specifics, um, the title of your work uh, is No One Asked Me, uh-huh. and it deals with Latinos' experiences with Massachusetts health care reform, which I believe took place in 2006. Um, so how long was your study, how long did you have to, how long did it take for you to um, complete your study and publish? 
the the study, the study um, was funded by uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation okay. uh, under a program called New Connections. Mm -hmm. And this program is specifically designed to fund projects from historically underserved and underrepresented um, um, professionals or, or researchers in, um, in, in research. So um, I was um, interested in, and they have one specific focus on access to, uh, access to care and, and, and health insurance. And I, I um, the study, the proposal um, would call for a project that would last one year. Okay. So the study, uh, the study took a year to complete. Uh, it's a qualitative study, meaning that um, I was interested in exploring and learning more about people's experiences with health reform in Massachusetts. And the reason why I wanted to focus on health reform is because one of the a piece of the call of proposals focused on the issue of health health insurance affordability. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in looking at how Latinos perceive affordability. And the title of the project is called No One Asked Me because what happened here in Massachusetts is that um, low-income residents who are not eligible for Medicaid or Medicare or, um, <clears throat> or, or um, uncompensated care, which means uh, where they can get what used to be called free care, but it's no longer called free care when people don't have to even pay a premium. Um, they gov the government actually established a, a, a scale fee, so a fee scale. So I wanted to see to what extent people felt that even when they were not asked how much they could afford, whether what the government said that, that they could afford, they actually found it affordable. So that's why the, the name of the, of the study is called No One Asked Me, because basically these fees were imposed based on a mathematic formula, uh, taking into account what people can afford based on their income and their family size. I see. So that doesn't, um, I guess, let's go back a little bit and talk about the 2006 health care reform in Massachusetts. Um, what were some of the sort of stark changes uh, that the health uh, care reform mm -hmm. brought to uh, the health uh, yeah. service in Massachusetts? Can you spell you know, yeah. some so, points for us? Yeah, so Massachusetts became a national model even before the, presidential, the last presidential campaign mm -hmm. because in 2006, um, this, this bill was signed into a law, and basically what, what it stipulated was that the, the goal was to have near universal health care in Massachusetts, meaning that most residents should have insurance. And how was that going to be accomplished was by um, having an individual mandate, which basically says that people who can afford it should find ways to obtain health insurance coverage. Okay. Uh, as a result of that, we now have a little bit more than 97% um, residents in Massachusetts with health insurance. And that's very important to, to distinguish because a lot of people say that this is more, mostly a health insurance reform. Basically, people have health insurance, doesn't, but that doesn't mean that everybody has equal access 
to health care services. I understand. There's still the differences between the different plans and... Um, and also how much people know about how to use right. their health insurance. Um, for example, um, I conducted 20 interviews. As I said, it was a qualitative observational study, meaning that I was basically going out there and asking individuals about their experiences with um, Massachusetts health reform. I was specifically interested in knowing how people learn about the individual mandate, mm -hmm. how they comply with it once they learn about the mandate, what did they do about it, and then what happened once they had insurance. Did they find that those premiums were affordable or not, and how did they cope with changes in their financial situation? I see. And, and what did you find out? Can you spell out the results? So basically what I found was, and, and again, you know, it's a small study. It's only 20 people, and the reason it's 20 people is because it was a one-year project, and it had a tight budget, so that's what, what um, you know, time and budget allowed me to do. Mm -hmm. So basically what I found was that most people, um, all my 20 participants learned about, knew about the the law and, and, and the mandate. How did they learn about that? They learned about the mandate and the law through uh, word of mouth, media, newspapers. You know, they would go to church. People would tell them about it. Mm -hmm. So they learned about that, about the, the law and the mandate in many different ways. <clears throat> then the other, uh, once they learn about it, then they need they, they they needed to do something about it. So one of the things that people did, they would some people would learn that that they didn't have uh, that they were no longer insured when they would go to a doctor's appointment and find out that they were dropped out of their health insurance because then now were eligible to, for another kind of insurance, you know, that some people experience that. Um, <clears throat> so once they learned that they needed to find uh, health insurance coverage, some people would call the Medicaid office. Other people would call the Connector, which is a quasi quasi-public um, agency that was established through this health reform here in Massachusetts that would clearly connect people to health insurance products. So they would call there. Some people would go on, on a website and find, out, and find out information. The reason why I also focus on Spanish-speaking Latinos and English-speaking Latinos was because as part of the health reform, the information was readily available in Spanish, and I wanted to see whether that information that was put out there was enough for people to learn about the reform and what to do about it. Um, so people have faced challenges trying to decipher the, te the technical language related to health insurance, and we need to understand that besides language barriers, people who have never had health insurance or who have never had to deal with this kind of information had a hard time trying to figure out what they needed to do, what they could afford, and how to apply for it. I see. And also, by reading your studies, you pointed out the importance of community-based organizations in facilitating right. that relationship mm -hmm. between um, mm -hmm. someone wanting to look for insurance and what's out there. Um, can you expand a little bit on that? Yes. So 
what happened, um, so, so some individuals would go out there on their own and try to find information, okay. and they would face challenges. So uh, they would go to multi-service community-based organizations that they were familiar with already, and then they would ask for help there. Many of these community-based organizations had caseworkers um, dealing with these situations. So some of the participants that I interviewed had caseworkers coming to their homes mm-hmm. to uh, fill out um, paperwork, uh, forms. Uh, they would come to um, to the community-based uh, organization. Uh, certain days that they would be um, taking care of individuals with uh, problems uh, having to do with health insurance, and then they would navigate with them. You know, they would make calls, they would file uh, paperwork. Sometimes uh, people will submit an application, Mm -hmm. would be rejected or denied, and then they would go back to the community-based organizations and they would start the process all over again. And some organizations... um, found some uh, funding to, uh, limited funding to do this kind of work. Okay. But they, they were instrumental in connecting people to health insurance. And many of my participants would say, so I, they would say, I, w- I, I don't know what would have happened had I not found this. And the thing is that mm-hmm. if they were deemed eligible to pay for their health insurance, if they couldn't show that they had insurance at the end of the fiscal year, then they would be hit by a tax penalty. Okay. So there are, cons- there are financial consequences for not having health insurance coverage when you are deemed eligible to find affordable health insurance coverage. I see. And, and just going back to this communi- the role of community organizations, did you uh, find that most of the, the communities, the, the organizations that you uh, found, were they successful in doing this? And what are some of the areas that these organizations could work on and expand? And, and, and yeah. is there a chance for them to get uh, training from yes. government officials? Yes, they, they were very successful. Um, even, you know, the, most of the participants that I interviewed who uh, rely on these community-based organizations to obtain their health insurance coverage got their health insurance coverage, and they, they became very savvy at knowing the kind of language, you know, the kind of requirements that, that participants needed to fulfill in order to be eligible for right. subsidized health insurance coverage. And the individuals that I interviewed actually were mostly people within 150, 300% poverty level who are the people who are low income yet they need to find ways to uh, pay for part of their health insurance. So these are people who would not get, you know, the so-called, although it's not free care, so they would not get uh, completely completely covered from the government. So, so these are people who face great challenges uh, trying to, um, you know, cover all their... their um, their uh, daily life, you know, expenses, daily life experience expenses. So what happened with these community-based organizations is that they were, they would, you know, their caseworkers would get on the phones, make phone calls. As I said earlier, some of them would even go to uh, 
um, participants' home to complete applications, and they they become very proficient at knowing um, how to um, how to take all this information and help these individuals make decisions as to what they could afford. One of the challenges is, uh, and I think that this is where many community-based organizations could receive training and help from government agencies, I think that it's important for um, these caseworkers to learn how to translate this very complex information into plain language, into right. ways that people fully understand what they're getting into. Because to give you an example, uh, the decision as to what type of insurance to choose is very challenging. And my impression from uh, most of the interviews that I conducted is that a lot of individuals make decisions based on the premium, the amount you know, the, the, the money um, that they have to pay every month, the monthly premium, but not the fine print or the specifics about coverage. Right. Just to give you an idea, you know, they say, okay, so I'm going to pay a $50 premium, monthly premium, mm -hmm. but they don't know that, for example, that they will have high copayments for doctor doctor's visits or emergency room visits or for medication. Mm -hmm. So some participants were surprised uh, by the fact that, that they are paying a monthly premium, but if they go to the doctor, they have to pay a $10 copayment. Okay. Something that they say, how come, you know, why I have insurance, why am I paying this? So clearly they don't, they don't understand what a copayment is. Right. And someone probably didn't explain that to this person. So some individuals at the end of the day uh, found themselves with health insurance, yet they felt that they were underinsured. Okay. Because they still felt that they, that it was, challenging to um, pay their co-payments for medication, for doctor's visits. So I think that this is an area in which um, community-based organizations could benefit from, um, you know, a government program. And as, as you probably know, uh, the National Health Reform uh, Law now will provide, will offer grants for consumer assistance offices to assist consumers uh, with the process of enrollment, you know, information. Uh, so this would be a great opportunity to probably standardize the kind of information that these community-based organizations could, could deliver to residents in a way that is easy for them to understand. Okay. So can I assume that some of the lessons learned with the 2006 reform in Massachusetts are being applied at the national level now? I mean, um, is there one organization that's regulating and sort of thinking through how to create this literature? I don't know the specifics about that, but just from, from reading from reading the law, what I can see is that clearly they're going to they're going to make an effort to assist consumers as they navigate through this very complex um, healthcare insurance, you know, health insurance um, system. And can you talk about another issue that I'm interested in? Um, 
specifically, I'd like to know what what are the sort of psychological effects that a healthcare reform has on on the Latino community. Um, were the people that you spoke to um, sort of suspicious of the reform, and how did they react to this changes at first? I mean, um, yeah. were were they afraid that you know uh, this was going to hurt their their budget, and were they right in uh, that's having very, these fears? Yeah, I think that's a very very good point, and actually. Um, <clears throat> I did um, talk a little bit about that issue in in the report and some presentations that I've that I've done. Um, it had, I would say, that it had some some um, mental health consequences, okay. if you can call call it that way. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the the participants that I interviewed. Um, w- can be described as law-abiding citizens. These are people who want to participate in a democratic society in which individuals have responsibilities about their well-being, okay, mm-hmm. okay. And, they, and, and their responsibilities as citizens. So they all wanted to comply with the law. Okay. Like, you know, they said, "I want." You know, this is a law. I should comply about it. So, um, but the challenges were: Can I afford this? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and some some people at, at the beginning would be quoted premiums that clear they couldn't afford. So, some people struggle with the challenge. You know, I want to comply with this law, yet I cannot afford to do so. So. Um, I remember one male participant, he spent sleepless nights uh, with anxiety, uh, thinking, you know, I am, you know, the, the main provider for my family. I have the responsibility of uh, contributing to their well-being, yet I won't be able to do that. And he described um, how he had to go to his doctor and get medication for anxiety, depression, because um, he really, he really was having uh, a hard time. And he said, you know, at some point I said, you know, I won't be able to afford uh, health insurance. And the, the, his children would be, would receive insurance under the Children's Health Insurance Program, but he, as the main breadwinner, would be without health insurance. And he was also concerned about, you know, what if I get sick? You know, how am okay. I going to find uh, ways to pay for my care? So if you don't mind, I can, I can, I can read a quote from that interview. That would be great, actually. Thank you. So I asked, so I'm talking to this person, and I asked to him, so are you considering to pay the, pay the penalty? So I said, and pay the penalty? And he said, yes, and pay the penalty. I had, not, I, had, I had no other choice because I could not afford health insurance. It was a very stressful period for me because I had to go to the doctor. I had a very stressful period, very anxious, very bad. The doctor had to, and then I interrupted him. I said, were you given medication? And he said, yes, I was given medication to be able to sleep. They were very hard decisions to make, but I had to make them. But I want to add something. If these centers, meaning the community-based organizations, do not exist, a large group of Hispanics maybe are not as fortunate as I am who can go to an office and speak English. So he started talking about he was able to speak English and he had 
more um, information at hand. So he's basically saying this was very stressful, yet I was able to navigate these systems, you know, because I, because I, I speak English. So he's comparing his experience to those who don't speak English, yet he had a, he, yet he had a hard time trying to make these decisions. Right. Um, yeah, I can only imagine. And, and you point out here in your study that uh, 30% of the uninsured Americans are Hispanic. Exactly. Is, is that true? Okay. So, I mean, it seems to me that the, the, the question of how to make uh, literature available in Spanish is crucial to whether this plan is going to succeed or not. Yeah, and the important is... It's not only that it's available in Spanish, but I think that it, this is true for any language, even for English speakers. It has to be written in a way that people understand it. Okay. So it's the issue of how clear this information is, how clearly is 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 outlined, so people can follow step one, step two, step three, and also, you know, how we can equip. Uh, other uh, individuals like caseworkers in community-based organizations in, in places that people go to regularly as a way to connect people. And some people are talking about a national um, campaign to, um, to educate all consumers, all residents about what health reform means to them. And again, because as we know, the moment that there is an individual mandate, it puts responsibilities on individuals to do something about it. Right. And again, we're speaking with Dr. Dharma E. Cortez, uh, Senior Research Associate of the Gaston Institute for Latino Public Policy and Community Development at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, just one additional question for you, Dr. Cortez. Um, um, what are the changes that you see, and I don't know if this is part of your study, but Overall, after three or four years since the healthcare reform in Massachusetts took place, do you feel like the Latino community is starting to uh, reap benefits uh, from this reform? Um, are, are they, are, is the community getting more used to the changes? Or do you think that this, maybe looking back, wasn't enacted in the right way? Um, would you feel comfortable talking about that? I, you know, clearly my study did not cover that. I would love to conduct a study to uh, take an in-depth look at the, the impact of Massachusetts health reform on Latinos. What we know clearly is that people, we have more people that have health insurance these okay. days. So I think that's a great accomplishment. As I said, more than 97% of the residents in Massachusetts have uh, health insurance. Um, however, I don't know exactly how it has impacted people because I haven't conducted that kind of study. But clearly, you know, it's a step forward, the fact that we have many, many more people insured these days. I think that's a great step Excellent. forward. Okay. Um, would you like to make any other comments? Maybe um, what are some of the next projects that you are going to work on that may be something that you're currently working at um, as far as the Latino community goes? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm participating uh, in a roundtable of uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation alumni, and we're focusing on health care, and we meet every three months to discuss um, actually, before um, health, national health reform was passed, we started already meeting about if, if health reform happens, what would 
what would be the implications for the nation at large. And one of the things that we're focusing uh, these days, uh, and we had a we had a meeting about a little bit more than a week ago, um, is work healthcare workforce. You know, what are the implications now that the nation uh, is going to have an additional 31 million individuals insured? Uh, after health, national health reform, mm-hmm. what would be the implications in terms of the health care workforce? You know, I know you know more people will will need to find a primary care physician, and uh, out of those 31, nine, 31 million um, newly insured individuals that eventually um, by year two thousand fourteen will will start to obtain health insurance. Um, 39 million of those 31 million would be Latinos. So are going to be Latinos uh, who would be newly insured. So there's um, there's a need to communicate with these individuals about the steps that they have to follow. We know that um, health reform will be implemented um, over time between now and year right. 2014. So uh, right away we should see in the next uh, few months information coming out uh, on websites about what health reform means to individuals. So uh, I hope that it's that, that people receive this information beyond just Internet websites because we know that not everybody access um, the Internet uh, with that frequency. So I'm wondering to what extent uh, we will need to rely in other um, mediums to communicate this information to people. Maybe, obviously, you know, ethnic media, like the kind of um, of um, sites that you have where people go and, and read your blog or listen to this podcast, but also, you know, maybe text messaging, Facebook, MySpace. And, but I'm sure that, that we will start to see information through all those mediums. Right. Yeah, that's probably, and, and of course, old media as well, like radio. I'm sure that's very important mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to get the word out as much as one yeah. can. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Dr. Darmus, thank you so much for your help, and I hope we can talk again in the next months or so about other healthcare-related issues. Um, but it was a pleasure having you uh, at this podcast. Thank you very much. This was a great opportunity for me to, you know, further share findings from my study. My pleasure. It was a total honor for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye.